I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello there everybody, Trek Cultures, Adam Cleary here and it is now time, finally, for undoubtedly the second most requested video in the entire history of of this channel. We have done the original Enterprise, we have done the Enterprise D, we have done Voyager, we have been through all three of these ships and examined what precious, amazing little secrets they all hold. And now it is time for Deep Space Nine. The first most requested video, in case you're wondering, is the one where I announce I'm doing some kind of OnlyFans, but you're not getting that anytime soon, you dirty pigs. So yes, here we are then, the largest spacefaring vessel to be the permanent home of a Star Trek series, the only non-Federation location to be the permanent home of a Star Trek series. Seven whole seasons of Deep Space Nine, including the adventures of the Emissary of the Prophet, the war between the Federation and pretty much everybody, and loads of tiny little stories about Starfleet, the Bajorans, and the many civilians who inhabited this station. And yes, as you might suspect, there were loads of things they wanted to do on the show. There were loads of things they couldn't do on the show, and of course, they did release a technical manual. So we have poured through the data to find you 10 amazing secrets about Deep Space Nine you didn't know. Which I've, I've ruined the intro by saying it at that point, because now I'm Adam Cleary. This is the video. Number 10, Deep Space Nine's first appearance. Now, if I was to say to you, when do you think the first ever televised appearance of Deep Space Nine was on screen, you would go, uh, doy, that's season one, episode one, The Emissary, that was the first episode of Deep Space Nine, so that was the first time we saw Deep Space Nine, and to that I would say, <laughs> you're wrong. The season six Next Generation two-parter, Chain of Command, was supposed to see Picard, Worf, and Beverly go to Deep Space Nine, interact with a number of their characters before setting off on their mission into Cardassian space where, you know, it all goes wrong and they get captured and there are four lights! Best impression I could do that. However, a small problem arose when Deep Space Nine's initial broadcast date got pushed quite far back, meaning that by the time Chain of Command went to air, Deep Space Nine wouldn't be a thing yet, and they didn't want to introduce all these new characters in this new setting in another show, and that would be a bit weird, but the problem was they'd already built the sets. Now, as I'm sure you are aware, our intrepid crew head to Tormund Ver to go talk to a very seedy Ferengi in an even seedier bar, and yes, you are already there ahead of me. That was supposed to be Quark's bar, and that was supposed to be Quark. And while they did redress the sets, they didn't really redress them all that much, so where this meeting with Damien Solok takes place is actually Deep Space Nine's Reprimat set. So, yes, there you go, the first time you see Deep Space Nine is not in Deep Space Nine, nor is it presented 
as Deep Space Nine, but still it is Deep Space Nine. Number nine, CGI. Never said to you how many times you think you saw a CGI representation of Deep Space Nine on screen, you would go, uh, probably loads. They actually used loads of CGI in the making of that show, and I would say to you again, ha 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 no, they built one giant big model of Deep Space Nine and they used that for every single shot of the space station from any angle in any setting. They used that model every single time Deep Space Nine was shown on screen except for one shot. The last shot. Yeah, loads of the space battles, they were CGI. Loads of the other stuff, that was CGI. Obviously, the weapons and stuff, that was CGI. But every single shot of Deep Space Nine was a physical model, except for the last shot in What You Leave Behind, when Kira and Jake are looking out the window, and we get that slow zoom out of the station to find it just hanging there in space. That was the only time they used a CGI model of the station. Basically, they built a CGI model of it quite early on, assuming they would have to use it at some point, and then just never actually did so we just sat there on somebody's hard drive for the whole time until at the end they went you know what well we can't really do the model camera pull thing that'll look really janky so yeah go on then give us the digital version number eight the federation upgrades now my favorite deep space nine episode as i've told you a million times like three actually on here is the way of the warrior because well, it's got the best space battle ever seen in Star Trek, in my honest opinion. It's a great storyline, Worf's in it, Cisco is at his badass best. There's a load of reasons to like it, but it also includes that moment where all those torpedo turrets and all those phaser pylons just deploy from the station, and little childhood me went, oh, 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 oh. And while this was obviously a big popper, it was also part of a long-running storyline that started in Season 1, where the Federation and Bajoran crews were wrestling with the Cardassian technology, trying to strip some of it out and trying to make other parts of it work. Now, while it's never specifically mentioned on screen, loads of other systems were brought up to Federation standard over the course of the show. Loads of the computing stuff was changed with isolinear chips. The power systems were completely changed for Federation stuff. Even the docking systems were changed without it really being mentioned, although it is slightly visible after a certain season. But the most visual change regards the computer terminals. When they first move in, it's all that nice green, purpley Cardassian stuff. But by the time the show enters its six, seven, and eight seasons, most of the new terminals, especially in the wardroom and the medical bay, are now all Federation issue. They didn't talk about it, but they spent that entire show redoing that station. Do you know what? Speaking as a man who was bought, assembled, and painted an entire Warhammer 40k army, Adeptus Sororitas, in case you are wondering, during lockdown, it's just nice to have a project, isn't it? Number seven, the Unseen Promenade. Now, the promenade was a big ring in the middle of the station. They told you that a million times, but you, yes, you, only ever saw one third of that ring. All right, it wasn't quite a third. Basically, they built a set that was one third of a ring, so you could never quite see where it began and ended, and they put permanent fixtures in there, like the temple, Quark's bar, things like that. And yes, they did create ad hoc sets every now and then, like the Klingon restaurant and Garrick's Tailors. They were built, and they were in other parts of the promenade, but by and large, two-thirds of that were never on screen. What else was on the promenade, Adam? I hear you ask. That's the only reason I've clicked this video, so you can give me this information. Well, okay, wow, jeez. Calm that one down a little bit. There was also a Bajoran greengrocers, because, of course, you'd have Bajoran greengrocers. There was an EVA suit shop, so you could get, like, measured for your out-in-space 
apparel and then buy it there. That was called Del Floria's and also a shop called Yo-Yo Dine Propulsions for some reason. Apparently that last one is a reference to the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. And apparently there are loads of backstage references to that in the show. That's all I've got. Number six, the promenade in real life. Now, if the first two Star Trek series, the original series and The Next Generation, were supposed to be Gene Roddenberry's, like, wagon train to the stars, then that makes Deep Space Nine the Rifleman. Don't, don't sit there and be like, I don't know what any of this means. They're really old Western shows. Two were about exploration, exploring the Wild West, but The Rifleman was about a frontier town. That, that's a great reference. And Deep Space Nine is a frontier town when you think about it. It's at the very forefront of exploration. It's in unknown territory. And look, at the promenade is its main street. You've got a sheriff's office. You've got a saloon. You've got a jail. You've got a schoolhouse. You've got a church. You've got a brothel. Holosweeter, obviously. Obviously, Holosweets are a brothel, because as we've discussed before, if Holosex were real... <laughs> and as I've just mentioned before, with 120 degrees of this 360 degree set actually ever being made, it actually was all really made in real life. They made a 120 degree round strip with all these sets being semi-permanent. Like, if you walked into the real life promenade in Deep Space Nine, it would feel like you were actually on a promenade, not just loads of disconnected TV sets. It actually wasn't even finished in season one because they were just, you know, seeing if they were going to get renewed for more seasons. And when they were, they spent a bit more money and put that second level in where Quarks has his nice little a la carte outdoor vista, whatever it's called, seating area outside. <laughs> Number five, there was almost a monorail. Yeah, unlike a lot of Star Trek series, the original pictures for Deep Space Nine actually got fairly close to what the finished product was going to be. Yes, of course, Cetacean Ops. Yes, of course, the giant computer cores in the next generation. Yada, yada. We all know that. But when they actually drew Deep Space Nine, they got it pretty much spot on. Except for there was supposed to be a monorail. Yeah, the very, very, very original pitch for the promenade was supposed to be far more grungy, far more Blade Runnery, far more messy, far more going on than just like a nice simple walkway with a few adjacent shops. This early image by Ricardo Delgado is glorious. I'd actually like to see that as a TV show at some point, but if you look carefully in the middle, zoom and enhance please Chris, that is a monorail. Now while I do hear those things are awfully loud, you would suppose in the 24th century they would glide as softly as a cloud, but either way the decision was made to just put actual turbo lifts in instead because, well, it's Star Trek and also money, because monorails are expensive. And uh, while I'm on the subject of turbo lifts, you've seen how in Ops they go on, he goes promenade or defiant or something, and it actually lowers down, those are the only actual functioning lifts in any Star Trek series. Because all the other ones, the doors close, and that's it. They don't move. They built actual moving lifts in Deep Space Nine. Only show that ever got them. Number four, Alien Tower of Babel. In fact, actually one of the original, 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 early, 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 early designs was that yes, this was going to be a former Cardassian station in the sense that they had been occupying it, but that they had not built it. It was going to be this alien Tower of Babel with all these different cultural and technological wings to it that have been added by different species over thousands of years. The idea behind this being they could make it look whichever way they wanted and they could do so many different things with it over the course of the series. If they wanted to focus on one thing, it could go in this part of the station, want to focus on another, it could go in that part of the station and there would be no shortage of the adventures they could have just discovering new parts of the station and discovering these alien civilizations 
that had built them. But then they thought, nah, so do that. Let's make it an ore refinery plant. And from there, they went to a design for Deep Space Nine, which is pretty close to how it actually ended up looking, except that all the pylons were actually connected, so it was all interlocking circles and stuff. They had a look at that and thought, nah, let's cut them off so we can put some ships at the various points. And pretty much from there, that's the design we got. Something this production claims looks like a cross between an Atom, a Mercedes logo, and a gyroscope. I can see that. Number three, the largest refinery in space. Small bit of trivia this, which they never really went on about on the show, but the fact that Terok Nor, as it used to be known, used to process 20,000 tonnes of ore a day, thanks to its slave Bergeron workforce, which again, they got over really quickly on that show, I hasten to add. Anyway, that was the largest refinery in space ever. Like, not the biggest space station, Earth space dock absolutely dwarfs. Deep Space Nine in terms of actual size, but nowhere on Earth was working harder than those Bajoran slaves and those Cardassian masters. Really puts a skip at your step, doesn't it? In fact, actually, the handful of times on the show in either flashbacks or parallel universes where we do see Deep Space Nine working as an ore processing, refinery, whatever it was, planned so much of that station after the Federation took it over was never actually fully converted. There was still causeways and pipes and chutes and tunnels and all sorts that were designed to move the ore around the station. Starfleet just couldn't really do anything with them. They put people in the habitable areas and they fixed all the stuff they could, but it was still at heart like a big ore thing. I actually always thought it was quite weird in Deep Space Nine how Starfleet just moved in and went, aha, here we are, the most abundant place to get iridium in the galaxy. Well, we'll not be doing any of that. Number two, there's an ATM on the promenade. Money doesn't exist in the 24th century, unless, of course, you're on Deep Space Nine, and unless, of course, you're within the spitting distance of any Ferengi bar. And the thing is, there have been rumours for so long that there was an ATM on Deep Space Nine. That's where everybody kept getting or the Latinum from, but they never talked about it, they never showed it, they never made it a feature of the show, which you'd think would make sense, because I was always like, do these, do these Starfleet people who do not get paid, they just have like a little stash of Latinum somewhere? I never got that. But yes, according to Armin Shimmerman, Quark himself, there was literally a Ferengi ATM opposite Quarks that just never made it onto screen. They just, they never filmed anything anywhere near it, they never talked about it, they never went to it, but it was... It was there. He loved it. He assumed they were going to do loads of things with it. He thought it was the most impressive prop they had on the show. He wanted to take it with him after the show ended and just... You've never heard of it. You've never seen it. There it is. That's, that's the first time I've ever seen that. One interesting thing about it is if you look close enough, you can see several logos on there. There's a Federation logo. Fair enough. There's a Klingon logo. Fair enough. Bajoran logo. Fair enough. Vulcan logo. Fair enough. Ferengi logo. Duh, obviously. Fair enough. And the logo of the man from UNCLE. Blum. Number one, Deep Space Nine's future. Alright, so we don't know in canon what happened to Deep Space Nine after What You Leave Behind. It was never brought up in the last episodes of Voyager. It was never mentioned in Picard. It's not come up in Lower Deck so far. It was never in any of the movies. We just left it at the last episode of the show. And we don't know officially what's happened to it since. Now, in a series of non-canon books, Ro Lauren gets to become a captain in Starfleet. She is given command of the thing. It is destroyed and then rebuilt as a traditional Starfleet space dock. But that's not... That's none of that's ever been canon. Nobody associated with any of the shows has ever said that's true. However, in a 2019 documentary, almost the show's entire writing staff have said that how they envisaged the station carrying on after Cisco left in some mythical season eight, were it ever to be made, was that it became a shrine 
for the emissary. Kira was still in command of it. Now she was, of course, Vedic Kira. She was in charge of the station, but now Bajorans would make a pilgrimage from the surface up to Deep Space Nine to pay tribute to Sisko, for whom there were loads of statues holding orbs all over the place, and then to watch the wormhole from the promenade. It basically became a religious institution based around Ben Sisko. And you know what? Fair enough. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.